Section 31 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ricky Chidez. Prince and Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. Section 31. Heiliger Lee. By the end of April, Louis of Nassau and his army of refugees, adventurers, and mercenaries had entered Friesland, and at Uppingdam, he was joined by Adolphus in command of a troop of horse, and the two brothers advanced on Groningen, which town refused to receive the rebels but gave them a sum of money, on condition that they renounced an attack on the city. With this much-needed treasure, Louis was enabled to keep together his troops, and enroll more of the fugitives, who daily flocked to his banner, while he retained his headquarters in Appingdam, strengthening his forces and waiting for news of the enemy. Early in May, Ehrenberg, stadtholder of Friesland, came in sight of Louis's entrenchments. There was a sharp skirmish, and Ehrenberg fell back on Witwerum Abbey, where he encamped waiting for the arrival of Count Megem, stadtholder of Gelders, who was coming through the Coeverden with reinforcements of infantry and light horse. Louis was aware that Alva's two lieutenants were only waiting to join forces to attack him. Even if Ehrenberg did not fall on him alone, he knew, too, that the troops coming against him were 4,000 of Alva's best men, including Bracamonte's famous Sardinian regiments, and he was keenly conscious of the wretched rabble of his own troops showed in consequence. They were mostly untrained, mostly in poor condition, and had only been kept from a mutiny by the money of the city of Groningen and Lewis's acts and promises. William's brother had started on this enterprise with a recklessness that was not impudence but heroism. He was a good general and a fine soldier, and well knew how desperate was his adventure with such materials. But he had not hesitated. For to wait for more money and better men would have been to wait forever. Learning that Megham had not yet arrived at Ehrenberg's camp, he shifted his own position, marched three leagues through a little forest of fir trees, and entrenched himself near the monastery of Heiligerli. There he was joined by a messenger disguised as a priest who brought him news from Maestrich. It was completely disastrous. Illness had prevented Hugenstraten from taking his appointed command, and the Signor de Vigares had led the forces which were to attack Juliers, raise the country, and secure Maestrich. These objects had failed. The two Spanish generals, De Lodrovo and De Avila, had attacked and defeated him at Dalem. All the invading forces of 3,000 men had been put to the sword, and David Jardis himself sent to Brussels for execution. So ended one of the three attempts on the Netherlands. Louis crushed the dispatch, which had been sent by one of the prince's secret agents in Maestrich, 
into his doublet, and said not a word of its contents to any, even to Adolphus. That evening they dined in the convent of Heiligerli, which the monks had fled at their approach. The abbot had joined Ehrenberg at Witteweram. The building was pleasantly situated on a slightly rising ground, which behind sloped up to a wood of short poplars and beech. To the left was a large plain divided, for agricultural purposes, into squares, by means of ditches or canals. Before it, and to the right, was a vast stretch of swampy ground, which, though covered with lush grass, and in part transformed into pasture land, was, at this season of the year, impassable. A stone causeway leading to the convent crossed this deceitful morass, which was bordered by a road winding round the wood and hill, the road by which Ehrenberg must arrive if he made an attack. Lewis' position was as good as was possible to find in a country so dangerous by reasons of ditches and swamps. The shoulder of the hill protected some of the troops and the remainder occupied the only piece of dry ground in the vicinity. The morass stretched before their encampment as a natural defense. The heights, too, of Hilagerli, artificially created by early monks, were the only rising portions of the ground in the whole flat district, which was girdled and swamped by overflowing waters of the M and the Lippe. The ground was historic, as the two brothers wandered in the convent gardens before the dinner hour, they reminded each other of their school learning, which they had read of Herman, the early Goth, who on the very swamp at which they now gazed had turned back the victorious legions of Rome. And now again, the Germanic people had gathered to resist Latin tyranny and to oppose proud assumption of universal dominion by the assertion of man's eternal right to freedom of person and of conscience. It was a fair evening, and the scene before the two young generals was beautiful, with languid, mellow golden beauty of the low countries. The swamps, covered with grass of a most brilliant green hue, melted to a wistful horizon straight as the line of the sea and misted with gold which faded into the soft azure of the heavens. The woods were the same hues, a sharp, bright, delicate green and gold, dull and glowing like the tint of honey. The road and the stone causeway were warm with a dusky golden shadow of evening. The convent buildings were warm and mellow in tone. The low-walled gardens before the doors were filled with homely flowers, pinks, stocks, and wallyflowers. Lewis leant his elbows on the wall and looked across the low, sweet prospect. His eyes traveled to the plain where his ill-equipped forces were encamped. He watched the men moving among the tents preparing their food and thought of those 4,000 beaten out of existence at Dalem and of the Señor de Villars awaiting to be sent to the scaffold. Lewis remembered him in the last council at Dillenburg, how he had asked for Bredarode and lamented for his death, he whose own days had been so numbered. The Nassau Count's face hardened. Who would next pay the toll to the Spanish fury? 
Adolphus spoke, scattering his brother's thoughts. If they try to cross the swamp, we have them, he said keenly, surveying the verdant, treacherous ground. Ehrenberg, is Stadtholder here? He must know the country, replied Louis. If it were a Spanish commander, I would have different and better hopes. I have good hopes, said Adolphus. He was tonight a little quieter, graver than usual. His fair and youthful face wore an expression of serenity and resolution. Louis had not seen there before, but he had never been with his brother on the eve of battle. Louis was glad he had not spoken of the news from Juliers. Ehrenberg will have good hopes, too, he answered lightly. He despises us and the beggars bitterly enough. Strange how in the old days at Brussels we rode and ate together, we and Magam, and now come to this. Ehrenberg is a sick man, said Adolphus. They say he can hardly sit his horse. I would rather die young than grow to be sick. A white pigeon and a white butterfly took flight together from the convent wall and flew side by side across the swamp until they were lost in the melting mist of the distance. Adolphus pointed to them. Like two souls departing, he said, putting back the thick lock of hair the evening breeze blew across his eyes. Do you remember the scryer who foretold our fortunes at Leipzig? He added. Yes, said Louis with a smile. He is in the camp. He followed us from Groningen and asked me leave to join us. He was with Brotherode. He said even to his death, then wandered in our track from Germany. Do you think he really can read portents? In the stars. The young Protestant general answered slowly, It does not seem to me that God would permit his heavens to show forth signs of murmurs to profit by. Yet these fellows have a grain of truth in their predictions, though maybe of the devil did not this man say, in Leipzig, we should all die a bloody death. And who among us then thought of war? He told me yesterday, said Adolphus, that for three nights there had been a falling star above Groningen, and that Ehrenberg's hours were accounted. God's will be done, said Louis soberly. He gave another glance at his camp and then turned into the convent, where their simple meal was ready. They were about to rise from the table when an officer brought into their presence a young peasant, a tall brown Frieslander, who told them that he had been running all day before Ehrenberg's army to warn them of the enemy's approach. The Stadtholder is coming straight on you, he said simply. He has with him many foreign soldiers and the sixth cannon of Groningen. We, said Louis, shall be ready to meet him. Rising, he looked into the eyes so blue and placid of the young giant who had given him this valuable warning. Can you 
handle a matchlock, or hold a pike? He asked. Either in the service of your excellency, answered the man quickly. Anything to give blow to the Spaniards. I have strong hands. And he held them out. Louis smiled to check a sigh. We are none of us great soldiers, he said. But we may be great fighters, if God's will. He took the silver beggar medal from his neck and gave it to the Frieslander, bidding the officer who had brought him to enroll him in some company which was not full strength. The young general and his brother then threw their mantles about them and, descending the hill, went on foot among the encampment, exhorting and encouraging the men who now were enthusiastic enough and disposing the troops. The motley army was arranged in two battalions on the plain where they had encamped, each squadron flanked by musketeers and one protected by the base of the hill, on the brow of which was placed some light-armed troops, at once the decoy and the shield of the main army. The most dangerous position was assigned to the cavalry. This, under the command of Adolphus, was in the vanguard of all, directly facing the wood-bordered road along which the Spaniards would approach. When all arrangements were complete and all the officers had received their instructions at the hastily called field council, the brothers returned up the hill. The stars were now beginning to fade in the light of a pallid dawn. The woods were hushed, the fields serene. The bodies of men moving about to take up their positions were indistinct black masses in the obscurity. Lewis felt his blood beat strongly. He was about to strike the first blow in the cause to which his house was now pledged. Tremendous results, moral and material, hung on the issue of tomorrow's battle. And there was almost everything against him. When he went to change into his complete armor, he fell on his knees on the bare floor of the convent room and prayed, God, as we fight, not for our own profit, nor glory, but for thy poor people, forgive us all our loves and our hates, our lusts and our mistreadings, and let those who fall tomorrow die in thy mercy. When he had armed, he dismissed his pages and went down to where Adolphus already waited in the convent garden. The young Comte wore a suit of black mail with a little scarlet plume, like a burst of flame in his casque, and across his heart a scarf of that orange color, so bright and deep that it was frequently mistaken with the scarlet sash of the Spanish officers. Louis's harness was of an uncolored steel. He, too, wore the orange scarf, the tasseled ends of which fell to his thigh. Among the fragrant flower beds, two grooms held the two black horses of the brothers. The light had now strengthened, so that they could distinguish the pikemen from the musketeers on the plain, below and discern the sutlers hastening to the rear of the baggage wagons. Adolphus glanced at the banners which were being displayed in the still air, all of them glittering with gold, and silk which traced, he knew, the patriotic and bold inscriptions. Then he watched with interest his own banner, being brought up the hill by a galloping horseman. 
Lewis straining his eyes down the darkening road, where Ehrenberg was almost due. He will wait for Megum, who cannot be a day's march behind, he said anxiously. God be entreated, said Adolphus, that he attacks us. They mounted and were scarcely in the saddle before news came from the outpost that Ehrenberg was in sight. The banner of Adolphus now waved at the head of his little troop of horsemen, not more than three hundred, who waited on the hill to take up their position. Adolphus still looked at this banner. The morning breeze caught the folds and blew them out, showing the arms of Nassau with the mark of cadency of the fourth son and the words, Je me trendre, together with the inscription, was the motto of Louis's army, Nunca nuquam recuperiat mori. The brothers now, by a common instinct, turned to each other and clasped hands. The two fine young faces so alike in feature and expression in the stern frame of the open cast gazed at each other with a wistful and silent affection. Their hands loosened as they moved away when suddenly Adolphus turned back and, dropping the reins, threw his right arm around Louis's neck with a womanly gesture and kissed him. Then at a gallop he swept away put himself at the head of his little troop, and led them down the hill to their desperate and perilous position. End of section 31 Recording by Ricky Chides